All right, this is Theology Breakfast with Redeemer Baptist Church, uh, and we are in Calvin's sermons on 1 Timothy. This sermon is on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, titled, A Ransom for All. Here's the text. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, to which witness was born at the proper time. To this end I was appointed a herald and apostle. I speak the truth, I do not lie being a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We saw this morning, at least in the preliminary comments which we made, that the Son of God is not only the mediator through whom we find favor with God, he also bears this title of distinction. He shed his blood for us. As we pointed out, we must never separate these two things. The fathers themselves knew this through the symbolic rites prescribed by the law. The high priest could not approach God unless solemn sacrifice had been made. We see then that our Lord Jesus Christ now intercedes for us, since he has once and for all reconciled us to God, repaying all our debts to him. As long as we are accountable to God, we can never stand before him. It is not a matter of gold or silver. We are all guilty of death. God's wrath and curse are upon our heads. We must thus be cleared of our sins, or we can never open our mouths and address God in prayer. This was accomplished by the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore have an advocate who gives us ready and intimate access to God. Wishing to reinforce this point, Paul now adds, He gave himself a ransom. This means that we are no longer guilty in God's eyes because of our sins. Not that God does not have every right to cast us off, but in his unmerited mercy, he accepts the payment made in the person of his Son. This is what we need to remember. So each time the faithful prepare to pray to God, they should know that their prayers are hallowed and consecrated by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no need for the sprinkling of holy water, as is the papists' practice. The ransom which Paul speaks of suffices and makes satisfaction for us before God. Payment having been made, we have assurance and certainty that God will not refuse this sacrifice which he has promised acceptable to him and through which he is for all time reconciled and at one with us. If, however, we do not rely in our prayers on the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be perplexed and in doubt so that our prayers are futile and pointless. Scripture itself teaches that if we do not pray in faith and with assurance, we will gain nothing. James chapter 1, verses 6-7. through seven. In this regard, see how wretched the papists are, being incapable of grasping this truth which is so plain and unmistakable. So they conceive the maddest ideas, and when they have run this way and that, instead of drawing near to God, they move further and further from Him. Why is that? Because when they set about praying in their own way, what assurance do they have that God will accept them when they call upon Him? What is there but the vain belief that they may have what God has never promised? They are therefore always anxious and unsettled. Besides, when they deprive Jesus Christ of the priestly honor and eminence which God his Father has bestowed on him, how can they hope to attain anything by such sacrilegious means? They are defying God. And although they say that they do not mean to, to credit the saints with what belongs to the Son of God, this is exactly what they do. For since they attribute Christ's praise to those they call their advocates, and the, the rights of priesthood must also be theirs. So they are called the redeemers of the world. 
Here we can see how firmly the papists have shut the door against themselves when they fail to follow the appointed path and look for a roundabout way to God. Finally, they, do they ever remember the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ when they seek to come before God's face? As I have said, with, all, uh, with this, all our prayers are spoiled. There is no other way that they may be hallowed or made effective in God's sight unless they are sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. For our part, let us value the priceless blessing that God has given us in showing us how we should pray so that our prayers are heard and our requests are granted. That is what Paul is driving at when he refers to ransom. As to the rest, we should be clear that in speaking thus of Jesus Christ, he overturns everything that men presume to gain by their so-called deeds of satisfaction. This is a point worth emphasizing, for in every age, people have made the mistake of trying to please God with worthless rubbish, just as they might trying, uh, just as they might seek to soothe a small child's tantrums with a few baubles. Even the heathen know that they could not call upon God in prayer without the help of an intermediary, as we saw this morning. What then did they do? They had their intercessors, and they had devised a thousand ways of winning God's favor, just like the papists who followed their example. They resorted to washings and purifyings, mimicking what God had prescribed for the fathers of old, not that they should waste their time on such corruptible things, but in order to draw them up higher to Jesus Christ himself. When the Jews came to the temple in Jerusalem, water stood ready at the entrance so that each might purify himself before approaching the majesty of God. In this way, men learned that they were, to full, that they were full of filth and uncleanness. It was not enough, however, to know this. It was also necessary to have the remedy. Now, the remedy lay not in the water, which we know is perishable, it was a representation of, our blood, uh, of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that Jesus Christ himself must intervene at the cost of his death and passion to reconcile us to God, the Father, and his Father, and to secure pardon for our sins that they might no longer count against us. We must not fool ourselves by thinking that we can earn God's grace with a few ceremonies of, uh, or a tawdry display of piety. Paul speaks of a ransom, meaning that we are all accountable to God, but uh, meaning, yeah, meaning that we are all accountable to God, but that we cannot discharge our debt. God must therefore turn away from us, curse and abominate us, except for the reconciliation which we have through the blood of Jesus Christ and through his sacrificial offering of body and soul. Here is where our confidence lies and where our assurance is found. Our sins have been buried and we are no longer answerable to God. By this means we are absolved. As for the papists, they too believe, at least in part, that it is by Christ's blood that our remission is achieved. However, they limit its extent, making a mockery of the grace which has been won for us. How is that? According to papal doctrine in baptism, our original sin is forgiven. Should a Jew or heathen be baptized at the age of 20, 30, or 40, the sins which he has committed all through his life will be forgiven. But if, following baptism, we sin again, we cannot hope to attain grace and pardon unless we make some act of compensation. They do not, of course, dare to deny that God always exercises mercy, that he must stretch out his hand to us, and that Jesus Christ also has his part to play. Nevertheless, 
They say that we must make satisfaction to God for our sins, and that unless satisfaction is made, God cannot look favorably on us once we have erred. Reparation must be made. Now, we cannot satisfy God by discharging our present debt to him. We are like a man who owes another 100 crowns and a further 100 florins besides. Nothing says that by paying back the 100 florins, he is no longer bound to repay the principal sum he owes. Hence, the papists, recognizing that they cannot satisfy God by doing all that he has commanded, have devised a new kind of satisfaction by claiming that we can always go beyond what is required. There's a footnote here. It says, Calvin's phrase is, Fair du superabundant, in French maybe, or Latin, and it says, to go well beyond the call of duty. The reference is, as the preacher explains, to the Roman Catholic doctrine of supererogation, according to which merit attaches to good works such as fasting, almsgiving, or voluntary chastity, um, chastity uh, done over and above the explicit precepts of the law. So although God is angry with us because of our sins, we have the means to appease him by offering him compensation, such as so-called works of supererogation. Since, however, the papists are obliged to concede that we cannot compensate God in every way, and that men do not have the wherewithal to repay him, they add a further supplement, the blood of the martyrs and the, and the keys of the church, which is the power given to priests when, in the course of confession, they see fit to impose penalty. Thus the papists care nothing for the price and ransom which our Lord Jesus Christ paid for us by his death. So we are cleared of original sin, but because after baptism we are accountable to God and must find a way to free ourselves by making reparation, they trumpet their deeds of satisfaction and what they call their works of supererogation. And supposing a deficit remains, the blood of martyrs and the keys of the church can make up for it. What dreadful blasphemies are these? These people would tear Jesus Christ to pieces if they could. Now, is Paul speaking here of a ransom which applies to none but infants and to those who have not yet been baptized? On the contrary, he includes all the sins which make us guilty in God's sight. The question here is whether when we pray we can openly approach him and find him gracious. Paul assures us that we can because we have an advocate. And why should he intercede for us? Because he is our ransom. He paid the price for our sins. As long as we are debtors to God, the door is closed to us. We cannot address him in prayer. But do we not need to pray every day of our lives? Well, it follows then that the ransom to which Paul refers covers all our transgressions. Each and every day we must look to it and trust it implicitly. It is not only this passage that the Holy Scripture points us to the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his shed blood which cleanses us of sin. We read everywhere that if we are required to pay our debts to God, we have nothing worth of worth which could merit reconciliation or even come close to it. Let us learn then to seek Jesus Christ all in him all that we lack. Let the price of his blood be the means by which we are reconciled to his Father and have access to him so that we may pray with confidence. That is the second thing we need to note about the word ransom. However, because Paul states that the grace obtained for us by God's Son was meant for everyone, that it was not only for the Jews but for all conditions of men, the objection might be made that God chose a single nation as his inheritance and that he wished to be invoked only by the Jews. 
Why else, it might be asked, did he confine his promises to them, give them the symbols of worship, and train them to expect the great Redeemer whom he had promised? Surely this was meant only for Abraham's children. It might have been felt that Jesus Christ had not come for all, and that the unbelieving heathen should not have had a share in these blessings, but only the Jews who are, as God himself says, members of his family. That is why Paul declares that witness was born at the, that the, at the appropriate time. That is, God, who from the beginning of the world had set apart uh, people that had in making his covenant with Abraham excluded all the Gentiles from the hope of salvation. Nevertheless, Paul says there is nothing now which prevents him from calling all men to himself, even if for a time he chose to show special grace to the Jews. His wish now is for the Gentiles, too, to share in his grace and for the church to spread throughout the world so that those who before were far off should be gathered into the flock. That, in brief, is Paul's word to us here. We may look at this more closely and in a more personal way. Though Jesus Christ redeemed us from eternal death and shed his blood to reconcile us to God, it would have been of little use to us had we not had confirmation of God's gift. We need to, to be told about it, to hear God's invitation, to lay hold of salvation, and to benefit from the payment made on our behalf. Thus the Turks reject the grace one for all by Jesus Christ, as do the Jews. I think when he says Turks, he probably means it Muslims. Muslims yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Papists, too, although they do not say so openly, do much the same. All of them are firmly banished from the redemption which is ours, just as if Jesus Christ had never come to earth. Why banished? Because they do not have the testimony that Christ can be their Redeemer. Even if they have some taste of it, they remain continually hungry. And if they hear the word, quote, Redeemer, it means practically nothing to them, or else they fail to profit from what the gospel contains. Hence, men at present have no share in the grace which Jesus Christ has won for us. They will not accept the testimony given to them. Before God's Son appeared, the Gentiles were not only faithless, but God had so covered their eyes that they remained untaught. It was as if Jesus Christ had come solely for one people. As in the time of the law, it might have seemed that the knowledge of the truth was not for every land, but was being kept for that nation which God reckoned to be his church. Thus Paul says this, quote, My friends, God gave his law to the fathers of old and resolved to set them apart from everyone else. He gave proof of his goodwill to Israel, but did not do the same to the other nations, as the psalm says, Psalm 147, verse 20. Moses also, in his song, declares that in dividing up the world, God stretched out his cords and chose a people for himself, setting the rest aside as strangers, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 through 9. That honor belonged solely to Abraham's offspring, but now all the world must know that God is Father and Savior of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews. Thus, from Paul's words, we clearly see that the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ avails us nothing without the witness of the gospel, for it is by faith that we lay hold of salvation. Although salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone and only as we turn to him without the key of faith, he would be like a stranger to us. His suffering could not help us as if it would not belong to us, as it would not belong to us. It, this is a most useful lesson since nothing is better than to share the salvation which Jesus Christ has brought. Yet how few there are prepared to take the right path. 
we see how men spurn the gospel. They are all deaf, or else they block their ears to the truth God wants everyone to hear. Let us carefully weigh then what Paul tells us here. We will enjoy the redemption purchased for us by the death of Jesus Christ only when God testifies that he is one with us and when we receive by faith the gracious gift which is offered to us. This is why today there are so few who are reconciled to God by Christ's death and passion. Very many people ignore God's testimony while others refuse to listen or else gain little from hearing what God te- what that, that God dwells in us by faith and showers us with, his, with every blessing. Moreover, when the gospel is preached, as Paul says in the first letter to the Corinthians, it is so that we might have fellowship with Jesus Christ, and that being grafted into him, we might partake of all his riches, since all that he has becomes ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4-5, through 5, and verse 9. Seeing that he is willing to accept us as brothers, we must not doubt that in taking our poverty upon himself, he changes place with us in order to make us rich in him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Concerning the word, quote, witness, we note first of all that God has always borne witness to himself, yet, yes, even to the Gentiles, although they had neither law nor prophets. God made himself known to them when, he, uh, when the need arose, thus stripping them of every excuse. If there were nothing else than rain or sun or the natural order, as Paul declares in the 14th chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 14, verse 17, these evidences are, now, are enough to convince unbelievers of their ingratitude toward God who has made and fed them in this world. This is also the theme of the psalm we have sung, quote, The heavens, the sun, and the stars, though mute, send forth such a sound that we need no other teachers. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. There's a footnote here. The Genevan liturgy provided for the singing of a psalm in each of the two Sunday services and in the Wednesday service. By 1553, metrical versions existed of 83 psalms set to music by various composers and sung in a fixed order over a 28-week cycle. Psalm 19, which Calvin paraphrases here, was reserved for the Sunday afternoon service in the fourth week of the cycle. So they were working through singing all of the psalms Mm. regularly. See here, we have a book written in large enough letters to show that we must give glory to God. Yet such evidence was too obscure for men's ignorance and weakness. God was obliged to make a fuller revelation of himself, which he did by means of the gospel. The law and the prophets were, it is true, a lamp, to give light to the Jews, but they were for one people only. Now, however, this grace is given generally to every nation on earth. Paul was therefore right to say that these things were kept until the proper time, a point he also makes in the last chapter of Romans, in the second and third chapters of Ephesians, in the first chapter of Colossians. And as we will see later, 1 Timothy 3.16, he greatly extols the mystery which, from the beginning of the world, God had kept hidden but which he disclosed when the gospel was proclaimed, so that the very angels marvel at the unexpected news that those who were once separated from God and excluded from salvation should now be counted as his children, members of Jesus Christ and equal partners with the angels. Such is the extraordinary means which should fill every creature with awe. Nevertheless, as Paul says, it lay hidden since the creation of the world. Now, however, comes the proper time the fullness of time, as we read in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. 
when God chooses to reveal all things which our fathers never knew. That is the sense of Paul's expression here. We now see in some why Ephesians, in Ephesians it is said that Jesus Christ was sent to reconcile us to God his Father, bringing news of peace to those who were near and to those who were far off, and breaking down the partition that all might come together and that the conflict between Jews and Gentiles might end, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Here the apostle includes the two points which we stressed before. Jesus Christ is our peace. He shed his blood to wipe away our stains. He cleared us of our debts, becoming accursed for our sake. He suffered shame to atone for all the sins we had committed. Therefore, says Paul, we have peace. And whereas God was hostile to us, just as we were to him, agreement has now been made and reconciliation is accomplished. Even so, as Paul shows, this is not enough. What does he mean? He means that Jesus Christ came not only in his own person, but in that of his apostles and his ministers who preach and proclaim peace. Why so? To gather in the Jews who were near because of the covenant and solemn pact made with their fathers, still they needed to be reconciled to God through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That happened when the gospel was announced in order to bind the Jews more firmly to God. However, the gospel also went out to those who were far off, to the miserable Gentiles who had no access to him. These two received the message of salvation and of peace with God. It was confirmed to them that God now bore such love for them that he had put their sins behind him. Thus, the dividing wall was broken down and the ceremonial observances which God had used to separate Jews and Gentiles were swept away. Proof of God's grace and salvation was given without distinction to all the world. The message of this text is therefore crystal clear. In the first place, it was necessary for our Lord Jesus Christ to answer to God, his Father, for all our debts and for our redemption to be purchased by his death. In the second place, we must accept the testimony of the gospel that the reconciliation made by God is now revealed to us and given to us to enjoy. We may perhaps wonder why the apostle speaks of, quote, the proper time. Why, we might ask, was it fitting that news of God's kindness should be preached then, after, or rather than earlier? Why not sooner or even later? Paul quickly puts an end to all such questions by pointing us to God's sole providence and counsel. Let us be content then to know that this was God's good pleasure, and though we do not see the reason why he did this, we must nevertheless glorify him and confess that all his acts are more wise, most wisely and justly weighed. In a word, Paul's aim here is to humble men's arrogance and stop their foolish talk, since they are always much too hasty in inquiring into what does not concern them. He makes it clear instead that if we would be wise, we should accept whatever God is pleased to do. That should suffice. If men protest that it is not right that God should change his mind, we have a ready reply. When God sends us winter and summer, there is no change of intention on his part. We cannot, on that account, accuse him of inconsistency. These things might well change here on earth while God remains unchanged. 
If God should have his reasons for deciding changes of season every year, he deserves to be given glory. In the same way, we understand that in deciding for a time to withhold from the Gentiles the witness of the gospel, and then in allowing it to be published throughout the world, he chose the proper time according to his deliberate counsel. We cannot therefore say that he is changeable. Rather, let us worship him in all humility, for there, as I have said, is where true wisdom lies. Here we have a timely warning not to delve too curiously into idle and unprofitable matters. God, who has our measure, has revealed to us what is what it is fitting for us to know. So let us learn to be grace. Let's see here. Oops. Let us learn to be scholars. Sorry, this, the pages are sticking together. Let us learn to be scholars in his school. That and nothing more. Again, if we come across something which is odd and unexplained, let us heed what Scripture says. Quote, God's judgments are too deep an abyss for us to fathom now. Psalm 36, verse 6. Let us therefore be meek enough to say, Lord, all that you do is above reproach, for it is determined by your counsel. That is how we are to think of, quote, the proper time. Isaiah has the same idea when he proclaims, Now is the acceptable time. Isaiah 49, verse 8. The phrase, quote, the acceptable time, suggests that just as it is acceptable to God, so it should be to us. For it was time for the news of salvation to be carried throughout the world. Since God displays his kindness and shows that this is the time he has chosen to call us to salvation, we should not be peevish or dismissive or claim that we do not like it. Our annoyance will simply stop us coming to God. Let us quietly accept the grace which is offered to us, and let there be harmony, as it were, a sense of oneness and accord between God and us. Thus, when God declares that the time has come for him to call us to himself, we should say, Well, Lord, because you have spoken, we come to you, knowing that this is the acceptable time which you have chosen. So let us take this verse to heart. It has even more to teach us, however, for it contains a truth which is relevant to the whole of life. We are reminded not to give in too much to our own desires, as is our natural inclination. We should rather wait in order to discover what God's counsel is, and we should be patient and calm as we wait. Even if things do not turn out right, and our reason tells us that God should have acted differently, let us keep our feelings under firm control, submitting to God in such a way that his counsel becomes our rule. Remember uh, what we are told here. God has his proper time, and we must not expect him to work within the limits set by us. This is not in our power, nor must we seek to know too much about such things as we learn from the first chapter of Acts, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. One further point should be made about the word witness. It is important that we do not doubt or swerve from any doctrine which is taken from the gospel and preached to us. Why? Because we would be doing God a grievous wrong, since he not only sends men to be his witness, witnesses, but in his own person and majesty testifies to his fatherly goodwill. Notice then that when the gospel is said to bear witness, it is so that we might have greater assurance, 
knowing that our Lord means us never to doubt his goodness. If, on the other hand, God, uh, once God has shown us his goodwill, we continue to be hesitant and unsettled and even resist him, we can do him no great dishonor, for that would be to rob him of what is justly his, his truth. God therefore testifies to his goodness whenever the gospel is preached to us. For the rest, although those who speak to us are mortal men, we should not regard them merely as men, but should think of the place to which God has raised them. He has made them his witnesses. When a man is sworn in as a notary, the official documents he receives are held to be true and genuine. So if magistrates who have put a small spark of God's authority uh, have but a small spark of God's authority enjoy this privilege, and if this is rightly allowed in civil administration, when God sends us men and asks us to receive them as his witnesses, it is mere creatures, or is it mere creatures we offend when we refuse the message which they bring? Do we not see that we are doing dreadful injury to God? Let us determine then to give him greater obedience than we have done so far, and to treasure the teaching of the gospel referred to here by the word witness. May it mean more to us than it has in the past. Lastly, to confirm the things which he has taught. Paul adds, I was appointed a herald and an apostle to this end. I speak the truth, I do not lie, being a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. With these words, Paul signifies that, but for this, his witness and apostleship would have come to nothing. Everyone who accepted him as an apostle had therefore to know that God had poured out his grace on all the world, and that he sought to gather a church from among both Jews and Gentiles, so that those who before had been banished might be as one family. This is why Paul mentions his office, to show that God was Savior not only of the Jews, but of all peoples generally. In this connection, let us recall what he says about himself in the letter to the Galatians, namely the grace given to Peter as apostle to the Jews uh, was given to him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. There is also the statement made by Luke, quote, Separate me for Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Whether in these passages just cited or in the first chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, in every other place he deliberately calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. And although he argued this way for reasons peculiar to the letter he was writing, the point he makes is most helpful to us. If he had not been set apart for the work among the Gentiles, what good would it do us to hear what he has to say? We might admit that his words were good and holy, but they would be for the Jews and not for us. Thus it was necessary for Paul to be appointed an apostle to the Gentiles, so that through his teaching we might be brought to the hope of salvation and might share in the benefits which our Lord Jesus Christ has obtained for us. Paul spoke then not for one nation only, or for a single era. The Holy Spirit intended through these words to prove this point to, to us. Paul's message is for us. We are not deceived in believing that God is our Father and Savior. This he showed himself, himself to be by the mouth of those whom he chose to make our teachers. That is how we may apply what lies within the text. 
At the same time, we see how right Paul was to insist on the office which he held because of what we spoke of earlier. The thanklessness we show when we fail to receive God's word with due obedience. Those chosen for this work must demonstrate who their master is, for the initiative does not come from them. They must show that the message they bring is either for salvation or for condemnation, that it will be effective and will make those who believe heirs of God's kingdom. All others will be shut out. A terrible retribution awaits such as these, for they despise the message by which God would have us honor and reverence him. Paul therefore stresses the worth of the vocation which God chose for him, so that his preaching might find much readier acceptance. His example shows us also what our duty is. We are not only to set forth God's word, but we have power as well from the Holy Spirit to warn the faithless and the disobedient. In a word, we are to declare as God's witnesses that if men spurn God's word, it is with God they have to do, since it is he who appointed us and who has spoken by our mouth. This is what we must remember here. Now, if Paul had to struggle against the pride and malice of his contemporaries, how is it with us? Godlessness is more prevalent than ever. As for the papists, we know with what fury they are driven to stamp out all memory of God's truth, if that were possible. But why go so far afield? See among ourselves how irreligious most of us are. Either holding God up to scorn or trampling on his word, yes, even spitting in his face. There are some, as we know, who boldly claim to be Christians and who want to be known as such. Yet they cannot bear to hear God speak in such lordly tones as indeed he should. They not only want to be the best of pals with him, as we say, but want the right to sneer at every doctrine and do as they like, putting an end to all religion. These things are plain to see. Would to God that they were not so common. The truth is that we should hang our heads in shame. We deserve reproof for wickedness so great that even little children see it for what it is. For there are scoffers who attend this church once a month or every six weeks, merely to satisfy themselves that nothing we say is to their taste or liking. At once the cry goes up, Oh, that's the limit! We see it on Sundays, for example. What's this I'm saying? Not, alas, a hundredth part of what we see around us. Yet if we mention these things simply in passing without dwelling on them as, we, as they deserve, what's that? You think we're not acting as we should? Yes, that's correct. Shouldn't you do what is right? If you did, you wouldn't be where you are now. Yet they pass themselves off as Christians. Look carefully then at what Paul says when he calls himself God's witness. He shows that all who resist the gospel and who will not submit to it believe that they are dealing only with mortal men. God, for his part, declares that the cause and controversy are his, and that he will make his own defense, as Jeremiah calls on him to do. Jeremiah 14, verses 8 through 9. Let us then submit willingly to our God, bowing our necks in obedience to him, and paying him the honor and homage which are his due. Let us exalt him so that he may acknowledge us as his children, and may we claim him as our Father and Savior forever. Now let us cast ourselves down before the face of our good God, 
acknowledging our faults and begging him to grant us such repentance that being humbled as being humbled in ourselves we may find refuge in the one who offers himself to us jesus christ our lord and as he is daily set before us in the gospel let us so receive him that he may always dwell in us may we grow ever stronger in him who has united us with god his father and as we taste of his love May we yearn for that eternal life which will be ours once our earthly pilgrimage is done. Again, this is John Calvin's uh, sermon on 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 5-7. through 7. I'll close with reading the text again. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, to which witness was born at the proper time. To this end, I was appointed a herald and apostle. I speak the truth. I do not lie, being a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth.